0: Good morning and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. My name is Christoph Wodinitz. I'm your host. And today we are talking with David Tavares, a historian of Latin America, a linguistic anthropologist and a Mesoamericanist. He was born in Ciudad Juarez and he teaches at Vassar. His courses and research focus on religion, calendars, ritual practice, colonial Nahuatl and Zapotec texts, Campaigns Against Idolatry, Indigenous Intellectuals, and Native Christianities. He is the author of The Invisible War and more than 45 peer-reviewed articles and chapters. He is also editor of Words and Worlds Turned Around, the book we are talking about today, and co-author of Painted Words and Chimalpain's Conquest. So welcome, Dr. Tavares, and thank you for joining us today.
1: It is my pleasure, Christoph.
0: So this book comes from a 2015 conference. Would you please tell us how you first envisioned the panel and who your collaborators were and how this turned into this book project?
1: Yeah, you're right. This comes from a 2015 conference of the American Society for Ethnohistory. Uh, and uh, this, uh, I think, initially was uh, to rethink uh, uh, indigenous Christianities with a group of uh, people who have been influenced uh, in some ways by recent work uh, on uh, uh, Christianity and translations of texts into indigenous languages. And uh, I guess chiefly among them is the work, of course, of Louis Burkhardt. But uh, then, of course, we have uh, new philologists who are trained by James Lockhart, who have shared the different uh, uh, perspective on lots of different texts. So um, the central concern, I think, was to Make uh, historians and the historians and anthropologists aware of very recent work that has taken place uh, uh, in terms of uh, not just thinking about uh, missionary lexicography and uh, uh, conversion in terms of power relations and political relations uh, or in terms of control over uh, texts and meanings, but to really um, shine a light on lots of different. attempts to translate uh, uh similar uh concepts coming from Christianity. So what we try to do is to uh put together a very large group of uh, uh languages we have eight languages uh represented in the book uh uh Valley Zapotec, Northern Zapotec, Nahuatl, Quechua, Yucatec Maya, Kichemaya, Maya, Maya, and Tupi. Uh, so, this is, uh, I think, uh, a bit extraordinary in terms of the range of different sources. Most of the sources are uh, focused on the 16th and the 17th century. And, of course, we have an epilogue that was written by a Nahua anthropologist uh, from uh, the Huasteca region, Abelardo de la Cruz, who talks about Nahua Christianities uh, uh, today. Uh, so, you know, we felt that there wasn't quite something like this uh, uh, before that embraced uh, such a range of languages that really try to look very closely uh, at methodologies of translation at indigenous intellectuals at the role uh, that they played uh, in specific terms and also at the um, conversation and exchanges between uh, indigenous intellectuals and uh, missionary authors and lexicographers.
0: That, that is a tremendous project and uh, uh not only very ambitious, but very successful. Uh, would you tell our listeners in, in broad strokes about the world you are accessing through your research? Maybe start with Columbus and Cortez and tell us what was this conquest? How many conquistadors came? How many Spaniards lived among um, the indigenous peoples of Mexico and uh, Mesoamerica? T- maybe briefly tell us who, who are these friars, what were they trying to do, how long was this uh, conversion effort, and um, maybe also tell us a little bit about the native religions, um, uh, if if you can. I know that's a tremendous
1: request. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, what should I start with, I guess, with the mission invasion because that's a huge question. Uh, yes, so if if please. Uh, uh, I'll start with that. I guess, I mean, one way to think about this is that uh, everyone goes back to the work of Robert Ricard, La Conquête Spirituelle de Mexique, The Spiritual Conquest of Mexico, which, of course, uh, came out uh, in the late 1930s, and it was translated uh, in the early 60s uh, into English, and it made a big impact in the sense that it presented a uh, You know, some of the uh, uh, words that you use could be coming directly from Ricard uh, in the sense that we think about this as this uh, um, massive uh, project that involves uh, missionaries and uh, conquerors. And of course, uh, Ricard's uh, major contribution was to look at uh, all the different things that, uh, in particular, Franciscans did in central Mexico. Uh, while also alluding to other orders and other uh, areas, but this is at the core, I think, of what people think about when they think about conversion. So, of course, uh, you know, just to you know, go back to to the very initial question you posed. Uh, you know, Cortes comes into uh, I don't know, Cozumel, uh, Liza Mujeres in 1519, uh, starts uh, destroying. Uh, temples uh, to his heart's content, uh, and continues to do so and place crosses uh, uh, as long as indigenous people let him, and indigenous allies sometimes uh, they do, sometimes they don't, right? Uh, uh, At this point, uh, he might have have access to uh, sacred texts, sacred Maya texts that might uh, eventually turn up uh, in Europe later on. Uh, And uh, I guess as he mm, goes into... um, Central Mexico. And this is, I think, a, a key question that has been examined uh, uh, in uh, particularly uh, between 2019 and 2020, uh, uh, because of course, this is the 500th uh, anniversary of that first arrival. Um, so we th- tend to think about this as um, an encounter. Uh, but in some ways, what really matters is what happens afterwards, because, uh, and again, I mentioned the new philologists earlier, one way to think about uh, what uh, conquerors did was that uh, they came in, they, of course, uh, um, secure the allegiance of uh, uh, indigenous uh, states through either Uh, military conquest, which was the case, uh, you know, with the Michigan Empire, or through military alliances, which was the case with almost everyone else. Um, And then after that, um, uh, I think what happens in terms of uh, relating to religions is that there are different uh, ways to approach this. And in my own work, I've talked about different cycles, right, Uh, of uh, a... uh, um, uh, not only um, dialogue, but also uh, punitive measures. Uh, and of course, the first one belongs to what is called the Apostolic Inquisition, which begins uh, uh, a uh, quite early. You know, you have inquisitors like Betanzos in the uh, what is now the Dominican Republic and Hispaniola issuing decrees and trying to investigate. Uh, but when it comes to Mexico, it really comes in through the work of... Uh, uh, a, uh, people who are related to the first Franciscans who came in as a group, uh, and again, I'll take a step back from that kind of momentous uh, uh, arrival a that you uh, alluded at, at the beginning, and we have to think that, uh, uh, let's see, uh, uh, there were three Franciscans that came in, uh, a right after uh, Cortes, uh, you know, completed his uh, uh, military domination of the Mexican Empire. These were uh, a uh, Pedro de Gante. Tecto and Ahora, and I'm using, of course, the Spanish versions of uh, people who were actually Flemish Franciscans. So these first three Franciscans begin to settle um, in uh, central Mexico, uh, and just as they're beginning to to try to get a, a grasp on uh, language and conversion, uh, the so-called Twelve uh, Franciscans, which are, of course not the first twelve, because these three Franciscans arrived, uh a uh, earlier, uh, coming in, in fifteen twenty four, and then make their way on foot uh, from uh, the port of Veracruz to Mexico City, thus kind of um, a uh, rehashing the uh, uh, the entry of Cortes, uh, and of course, and this goes back to Ricard's point: this is uh, not a military conquest but a spiritual one. So we have this uh, twelve. Can, may I ask?
0: Uh, yes. uh, so. Mm-hmm. Cortés originally had a few hundred soldiers, right? And yet he was able to secure all of these allies who were really tired of Mexica rule, perhaps Lachcala come come to mind. Now, how many Spanish are here? And how, how you were talking about military alliances. Uh, who is it really? Who's in charge? How many people are there? And do they have to negotiate every step of the way so that they don't get murdered? Or do they really have an iron grip as they're trying to? not only control but understand yeah. who these people are in the okay first
1: place. so yeah so yeah let let me try to address this and i guess to go back to historiography i should uh, mention that uh, in some ways this idea of few men uh conquering thousands of people uh <sighs> comes uh, First of all, from Cortes's early letters, so it's uh, a, a political propaganda, so to speak, that is generated by Cortes as soon as he realizes uh, what is going on and that his alliances are successful. So um, this is something that, of course, uh, you know Cortes first claims, and then Lopez de Gomara uh, begins to put together into a wonderfully uh, uh, well-written. Uh, literary account of the conquest, the conquest of Mexico, right, that uh, uh, he writes on behalf of Cortes. uh, And that comes out uh, uh, in the early 1550s, goes through a number of different editions. And of course, this is kind of what I like to call the providential uh, a version of uh, the conquest history. Just a handful of men, maybe a couple hundred, uh, a uh, small number of horses. That under are, are they joined by maybe a couple hundred more that come from Narváez. And if you remember, Narváez is Panfilo Narváez is the man who sent from Cuba to reigning Cortés by the governor of Cuba, who's not happy about Cortés kind of breaking out free and claiming uh, this new land uh, without having uh, uh, the legal and political requirements that would entitle him to actually go forward and take these lands in the name of the king of Spain. Uh, So even, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, 400-ish men uh, the contrast is always drawn. And this begins again from, you know, 1552 from López de Gómara onwards in terms of like building this provincial history. Right. And for English speakers, I think William Prescott, uh, who writes The Conquest of Mexico uh, a uh, in the early 1840s. And, uh, you know, of course, this is one of the volumes that uh, uh, the U.S. soldiers who invade uh, Mexico uh, uh, in the War of Intervention uh carry with them to understand um, uh, uh, the country they're invading. Uh, And this um, version by Prescott, which is also very well written in English, uh, and it's also followed by um, uh, uh, an account on the conquest of Peru, is predicated on this notion that very few men come in and conquer uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Now, uh, for the most part, I think uh, a lot of um, historians in Latin America never... Took that very seriously. Uh, this, I think, comes from, uh, in some ways, a trend that uh, a uh, uh, you know, for instance, uh, I mean, Ricard is much more concerned with the monumental work the Franciscans did, which to him is probably counts as much more uh, impressive than what Cortes uh, ever did. Um, so, a lot of people, I think, who have read Prescott uh, and have influenced, uh, been influenced by him, and I think uh, this would count definitely people who are you know, uh, writing the history of conquest today in English, uh, a uh, have this uh, way of approaching this as the, uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned for this kind of providential question. And of course, uh, for people who are a, uh, a familiar with the dynamics of the conquest, uh, you know, you would know that the first thing that Con- uh, Cortes tries to do is to establish alliances with um, uh, Maya-speaking peoples uh, in Yucatan and then the Gulf Coast, uh, uh, those first encounters give him a translator that he's able then to link to uh, Malintzin or Malinche, uh, who translates between uh, different uh, Maya languages in, in Nahuatl. Uh, and Nahuatl. Uh, and so what you have then is uh, uh, an early attempt by Cortes to... Uh, Try to find allies, and uh, he finds them in different places, uh, uh, most prominently in terms of uh, uh, even Lopez de Gomer's account, uh, the uh, people of Tlaxcala, who are very um, angry with the Mexica. But uh, um, by the time that, um, you know, remember, there's a second F and a flow, Cortes comes in uh, on uh, what, November 8, 1519, is received by. Uh, uh, Moctezuma, he takes Moctexuma prisoner, uh, he is then uh, ejected from the city uh, in the uh, early spring uh, of the next year after uh, executing Moctezuma, and then uh, a resistance from within the Mexican Empire begins, right? But then this is the point at which Cortes goes back on his uh, previous Uh, talks uh, with uh, lots of different uh, uh, Nahuas speaking uh, primarily, but also people who spoke other languages who uh, are uh, not happy with the Mexica rule. Uh, And he comes back and then lays uh, siege uh, to Mexico Tenochtitlan, the uh, the capital of the Mexican Empire. And this is something that takes place uh, in 1521, roughly speaking, uh, uh, from kind of late spring uh, until August uh, uh, 13 of 1521, which is the day that uh, uh, Mexico Tenochtitlan uh, falls, right? But uh, the Mexico Tenochtitlan doesn't fall to 400 men, it falls to a, uh, a uh, uh, Spanish man who are uh, leading armies of tens of thousands of indigenous allies who are very happy to come in and sack the city of their former overlords uh and pillage and uh you know take uh uh you know uh, what they can. And of course this this is a process that uh, as far as when it's orchestrated by by Cortes himself. But uh you know something important to to emphasize here just in terms of, of numbers since you brought this up a couple of times is that uh, uh a uh the the reason why you know Mexico falls is because there's a concerted um A uh, effort on the part of tens of thousands of uh, allies that are led by their respective leaders who decide to uh, uh, rebel, basically, against uh, the Michigan Empire. And they accept uh, uh, Cortez's leadership in in, in that regard, but at the same time, they make... uh, even the the very brave resistance that came out from a different generation of leaders uh, after motexuma uh, particularly coctemoczin uh, um a uh, irrelevant uh, in in military terms because there's just so many of them attacking so, so few of the mexica former overlords
0: i think that really helps us Im- imagine it and especially for a you know a, a united states audience where <laughs> there is a uh, imagine a tradition where the english arrive in the new world and continually displace the native peoples and you end up with this English society or Dutch and, you know, French and whatever. But I, I think it's more interesting to think of Mexico as a new arrival group of Spaniards and, and Spanish Catholics um, who then somehow have to use the existing power structures there in order to manage such an empire. Um, and so I think that helps us think about, what this Christianization would look like and who is doing the work. Um, and maybe that's where you can tell us the next chapter, which is really the subject of your um, your book.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, no, that, uh, um, I'm kind of responding to your big two or three major questions that you asked me while ago, step-by-step. Yes. Uh, step. So now we can talk about the missionization. So again, going back to uh, the early days after the, the conquest, uh, uh, something that the Franciscans, in particular, knew had to happen was that they had to communicate with indigenous people, not using Spanish because or Latin because they knew uh, neither of those languages. But they had to actually begin acquiring those uh, uh, languages, right? uh so um the early franciscan's just to go back to you know the work that uh, begins to be done in the first decade uh, the 1520s after um uh conquest again to to emphasize this point there um the, the the spanish are ruling over uh indigenous states that are still headed by uh indigenous nobility uh and that uh, you know life continues to go on uh for maybe a generation or generation and a half in much the way that uh, it had gone on before the conquest. And then gradually we come to uh, a... uh, and this is, of course, something that uh, is important for the Franciscans, because on the one hand, they want to establish um, dominance uh, on the language. This begins with Gante uh, establishing a school at San Jose los Naturales, uh, which is meant uh, for uh, uh, young indigenous people to be uh, uh, um, uh, trained in uh, uh, not only Christianity, but also uh, European arts and practices. And. Um, then we have uh of course Martin de Valencia who's a leader of the twelve uh who a uh, is constantly pushing forward and is actually getting quite impatient uh, uh you know at some point he even has dreams about going to Asia because the people uh and this you know uh, happens uh, according to many and other chroniclers by the late fifteen twenties uh, uh he just gets tired of uh, indigenous people not um accepting uh, that Christianity is a one true religion. Uh, and, and he starts dreaming about uh, going to Asia and, uh, you know, encountering other people who are going to be more uh, pliant in some ways. Right. Uh, uh, and at the same time, he pairs up with uh, Sumarra, who's going to become the first uh elected uh, a bishop of uh, Mexico around 1528 then he is appointed he comes back in the early 1530s and he starts uh, the first uh, formal inquisitorial process for or inquisitional inquisitional tribunal uh, not only for indigenous people but for anybody who was the subject of the inquisition which was of course everyone in uh, early modern uh, Spanish society um a uh, in the mid 1530s so he uh, Valencian Sumarga up uh, to destroy um, he idols uh, uh valencia famously uh, executes uh, uh, some uh uh indigenous elites uh, in Tlaxcala and other places that uh, he sees as uh, you know going against the faith uh at the same time uh gante and other uh believe that uh you know going back to this generational issue that i talked about uh, the 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 um, current elites are corrupted uh they're not going to going to Christianity willingly. So I have to work on the next generation. So we have uh, a lot of the work uh, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, it is about indoctrination, about teaching uh, indigenous people uh, how to be uh, European uh, Christians, but also to a very small group of them, how to be European scholars. So the idea, of course, is to isolate uh, young people Uh, who are coming from uh, elite backgrounds. Uh, This begins to be done by Gante, uh, but really uh, is taken to the next step uh, with the uh, uh, Colegio Santa Cruz, which is established in Tlatelolco, a uh, city-state just north of uh, Mexico, Tenochtitlan, in 1536. And, of course, this is a school that needs uh, the support of Bishop Sumarraga, the support of uh, civil authorities, uh, and it does so. And when it opens in 1536, uh, it opens its doors to dozens of colegiales, to uh, mostly Nahuatl speakers, but they would probably uh, have been people who spoke Otomi or other languages that are spoken Uh, uh, in in central Mexico. And these people are exposed to uh, the liberal arts, the trivium and the quadrivium, which means they get the same kind of curriculum that um, uh, uh, scholars who might be uh, going for their first degree in Europe are uh, being exposed to, right? And uh, they then become the partners uh, of... uh, Primarily Franciscans at Santa Cruz, of course, uh, in terms of uh, uh, not only teaching them uh, Nahuatl and other languages, but also helping them translate uh, a, uh, uh, a, uh, everything that the Franciscans wants them, uh, want them to translate uh, into Nahuatl. Uh, And here is, I mean, and just just, just to kind of give you a sketch of a couple of other important people, I'm going to talk about the Franciscans first, and then you can, I'll stop and see if you have questions, and then I'll continue with the Dominicans, who are also very important. I'm really talking about that. Um, So uh, just to go back to the early context, uh, uh, you have, of course, the 12, uh, and that includes uh, uh, people like... uh, 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 Jacob de testera uh, uh, Testera who's a French Franciscan uh whose name is primarily associated with pictorial catechisms uh and if we just make a slight correction I think that's uh, correct because he uh, is uh one of the people who is associated with uh, uh because he doesn't know Nahuatl. in the 1520s uh, he start uh, starts preaching through pictures so that means you unfurling large uh, Lienzos, large representations of uh, the crucifixion, of uh, the birth of Jesus, of uh, these um, important uh, episodes uh, in the life of Christ, and uh, showing through pictures with a translator, uh, with whatever uh, uh, means um, uh, are at uh, testera's disposal, uh, how you know and why, and uh, to become Christians and what Christianity is, um, a in uh, the. Uh, Eventually, what happens is that uh, uh, you have the production of the first uh, catechisms and grammars. But this idea, of course, that uh, uh, the pictorial catechisms that we have, which come mostly, uh, it seems, from the 17th century, are directly linked to Testera, seems to be uh, an incorrect idea. And it seems like uh, uh, while there, are, you know, there are some um, um, a uh, catechisms like this called Humboldt Catechism that it's very different to the pictographic catechisms, and that mm, works with images in a very different way, they might be related to this first phase, and all the other pictographic catechisms are actually produced in the seventeenth century, uh, which is kind of uh, interesting because this is indigenous people no longer need them. they read and write uh, uh, using the spanish alf- uh, the, the, the Roman alphabet, and uh, they are of course uh, remaking these catechisms to kind of reclaim this indigenous identity that I was born. Through uh, early evangelization, but to go back to Tastera and uh, to what is going on there uh, with um, you know the early Franciscans is that uh, uh, of course the 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 the, the first uh, important uh, task is to a uh, produce a uh, a doctrine uh, uh, in uh, in indigenous language. So one attempt, of course, uh, a uh, that takes shape. And uh bears its fruit around 1546, 1547 is Gante's first catechism. And we have later versions of it uh, a, uh that survive in full, uh not so much about uh you know the, the earliest version, but Gante's catechism is uh uh one of the first uh, systematic attempts to take together all the teachings of Christianity and put them uh in Nahuatl. Uh a uh Something important uh, to think about is that as Gante is doing this, he's also thinking about promoting uh, what he's doing. So there are some interesting letters that he sends to uh, his uh, province, the province of the Flemish Franciscans uh, in the 1530s, just advertising what he's doing, uh, talking about what he does with uh, the young um, 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 uh, converts. Uh, And uh, one of these letters, and this is something that I talk about in the, uh, preface of the book ends with uh, the first uh, a phrase that is actually uh, printed in in uh, in Nahuatl because this is a letter that is then edited um, in a um, a uh, Flemish produced uh, uh, edition of different letters that are coming from different parts of the world and this is to go back to. What is animating the Franciscans? uh, This is in some ways uh, precipitated by this uh, belief that comes from Joachim de Fiore and other early Franciscans that uh, uh, we are in the 1520s, 1530s living in the age of the Holy Spirit. That had been preceded by the age of the father, which is the Old Testament, age of the son, which begins with Jesus. So now uh, during this age, uh, there's going to be a lot of marvels that happen. You know, the gospel is preached uh, to all four corners of earth. Uh, and of course, Gante's, um a letter in the early catechisms fitting with this narrative, because this explains, you know, why the Franciscans are having so much success according to them. Right. Uh, so a. Uh, uh, we have, just to go back to to Gante's work, we have that early catechism, which is followed very, very, very quickly by the Dominican doctrine of fifteen forty eight, reprinted in fifteen fifty, which is the opposite of Gante. The Dominicans come in; uh, they have been studying now as well. They mm, don't have uh, as much control of central Mexico uh, at that point as they would like to have because they've been excluded uh, by the Franciscans, and yet they produce this. Uh, Um, again, very solid uh, A a first doctrina in 1548, which they actually present as an anonymous work because they want to very uh, studiously uh, kind of avoid this tendency of Gante and uh, Testera and uh, uh, Valencia and other Franciscans to kind of take individual credit or credit for the order for the work that they're doing. Uh, So in practice, actually, if you look at, uh, you know, how they translate different Christian concepts, there's an early, and this is something that, uh, you know, is talked about in some of the uh, essays, of course, uh, uh, you know, it's picked up in Justina Olko's essay, uh, is picked up in the introduction by Lewis Burkhardt, uh, uh, that there, there's an early lexicon uh, uh to translate different terms uh, into Nahuatl. And you see this lexicon kind of come together with Gante, uh, also with the Dominican doctrine 1548. And from that point on, I think most people tend to agree on a lot of uh, you know translation choices that are made by these early Franciscans and early Dominicans. Uh, we don't know much about the context, but this goes on until the end of 16th century. I'm sorry. Well, I think
0: this, I was going to say, uh, before we lose that thread, it's such an enormous question is who is it, you know, who is it for? And I I think of that sentence that you have in, in, um, your conclusion where, um, Pedro Legante is writing his first Nahat uh, line. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said you noticed like, well, he did it correctly, but he also garbled it here and there, but he's writing it for his, you know, his publisher back in Flanders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Pedro de Gante or Peter of Ghent I'm I'm I can't remember at the moment maybe you can correct me he is somehow connected to the emperor Charles who's also from 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 um, um, from the low countries or at least raised there and so he has this patronage back in europe and everybody's trying to show look at these achievements look how we spread the gospel to the far corners of the, the world and the rationale for the empire at least uh, from the Pope is like, look, you're going to convert these people to the true faith, and so a lot of this is demonstrating their achievements. And I think even those letters of Cortez that you mentioned, where he is inventing numbers for dramatic effect, he's trying to demonstrate to to his emperor, look, look how providential is this conquest of these people. Um, and so, so much of this um, that we read in in in, in your book uh, is, look what we've achieved. But you, it, the, the trick. The thing that you do that's so interesting is try to figure out what the people on the ground are thinking about this. And you do this through careful philology and and looking at terms and images. This is what it says to the European uh, outsider, but perhaps this is what uh, is the Zapotec meaning or or Mexica meaning or Maya. Um, What is that interplay between who's watching, who is it for? Um, and then of course, I think the, uh, another question, which maybe we can get to later is, you know, <laughs> what is, what is the nature of this conversion? Cause it's, it's, it's not that simple.
1: Okay. Well, the nature of course is, uh, Uh, what occupied Ricard for the most part and uh, people have debated in different ways. So I guess I'll come to that at the end. Uh, First, I think I'm going to uh, address your very important question about like, who is this for and what kind of, uh, how can we even begin to think about indigenous reception? Right. Um, So, you know, as we go along, I think um, I'm I'm, uh, in some ways we're kind of debunking, um, I won't call them myths, but uh, received ideas, right, about uh, conversion. Like people f- seem to think that, uh, you know, uh, the Pope does this, the Franciscans come in, which is certainly how it is presented to indigenous people. This is how it appears in a catechism that is attributed to uh, uh, Pedro Motoxuma, which uh, we, uh, I-, I talked about in painted words. But it's, it's definitely kind of this version, again, of uh, providential history. Right, that we're trying to move away from. In some ways, Ricard uh, contributes to that by presenting this uh, uh, a, a struggle, uh, particularly Franciscans, as this monumental struggle where the Franciscans seem to hold a lot of uh, um, the, the the power to convince, the power to uh, convert. But when you begin to look at uh, different things, and I think you know, rather than You know, uh, uh, speaking extempore, I I want to go back and tie it to some of the chapters in the book. So if you think uh, in very specific terms about uh, this dialogue, um, the uh, chapters two and three, uh, a uh, look at uh, how a notion uh, that was seen by the Franciscans uh, in... Central Mexico and by uh, Jesuits and uh, other uh, clerics in uh, Peru in the 16th century as a notion of confession is really more tied to particular ways of uh, uh, admitting one's um, uh, transgressions before uh, a native priest uh, and uh, Acknowledging this notion of, uh, and it's not, again, sin, but rather something like, uh, um, uh, uh, in the Nawa case, uh, a neologism is used, Tlatlacoli, something damaged, uh, is not something that is used in quite those terms. But there's notions about guilt, that uh, of things... Uh, that are mostly transgressions I have committed, been committed, uh, willingly or unwittingly by someone that have to come out into the open with the help of a native uh, indigenous specialist. And something similar happens with the notion of hucha. Uh, in in uh, oh,
0: but uh, but uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in in that chapter, I think you say that the guilt uh, and and the evil is a Zapotec idea, and the the Nahuate idea is something like you said, damage of balance. But mm-hmm. that feels to me much more like the original Greek idea of sin as something having missed the mark, you know, uh, whereas this, uh, Zapotec seems more to me rooted in, in this indigenous idea of a twisted, twisted branch. If I'm, mm-hmm. I have that
1: right. Oh yeah. No, I, I was talking about the, the, the Nawa chapter and the Keishwa chapter, which are chapters two and three, but now I'll go back to, to the Zapotec, uh, a, uh, case. Uh, uh, so yeah, you, um, Going back again, you know, we have this notion of something damaged uh, that is clearly neologism in Nahuatl versus uh, hucha, which has to do with uh, uh, something like guilt, something unbalanced. And then if we look at what happens in the Zapotec case, we also have a particular ritual where uh, a, uh people who are performing penance come and have to lie uh, before a priest, uh, uh a set of uh, a pieces of uh, a dried plant that are, 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 is twisted and each strand represents a particular transgression or guilt, right? And this is exactly, you know, Tola in Zapotec refers uh, to that particular assembly of uh, a uh, dried uh, vegetable matter that is presented to the priest. And in some ways, this is actually uh, um, a parse for the whole, uh, a a metaphor in terms of uh, how Dominicans then think about the notion of sin. They think that, uh, um, and again, we have to uh, take a step back and uh, figure out why they're thinking about this. Uh, They have a sense that uh, um, indigenous people might have come to comparable notions that exist in Christianity, uh, either through error, human error, uh, or through the devil's actions, right? Right. Uh, And in some ways, you know, uh, if we think about the work of Aquinas, we might favor kind of a more, um, in some ways, uh, different way of of how that originates, uh, having to do mostly perhaps with human transgressions. Uh, But it depends on, you know, what the particular uh, person is, uh, the particular missionary is thinking. But. Uh, the, the 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 effect is that uh, the dominicans and uh, in, in this case we're talking in particular about pedro de feria who writes the first uh uh uh, uh, uh doctrinal work in zapotec in 1567 and uh, we're talking about juan de cordova who writes uh of uh the first dictionary in zapotec and also grammar of zapotec that uh, are both published in 1578 uh they identify uh notions like the notion of, uh, of course, the deity, which they use, uh, Betau, which is the uh, uh, Zapotec word for a deity or supernatural. They decide to recruit the name of the Lord of the Underworld, which is uh, Mm Bezelao, as a name for the devil, which is something that uh, Franciscans do in the Yucatec uh, uh, context as well. Uh, They recruit that notion of uh, Tola as sin, uh, and then they deploy it as, uh, you know, the translation of sin. But then to go back to, to that, the, the, I was trying can, to... to Could you
0: comment a little more mm-hmm. on, on that, where you take the existing Lord of the underworld mm-hmm. and uh, overlay his name on the Christian concept of, of the devil? Is that something to, do you think, uh, demonize the current polytheistic structure or to make you know, give a name to something and do they not realize they're, you know, that they're, they're failing to erase the old, which was what they were supposed to be doing. Isn't that that that? I found that so remarkable um, that you would borrow an existing, you know, like we could say Hades. I think people say that in mm-hmm. from time to time. And I, um, that just struck me as, as such a surprise.
1: Yeah, well, you have problems if you think about it, right? Uh, if you just like borrow uh, the name of uh, uh, a supernatural, and this this is what happens in the Zapata case, right? Uh, Bezelao is uh, always, uh, you know, from Feria on from fifteen sixty seven onwards. How you think about the devil? The problem is, of course, uh, at the same time, and this comes. from... For, uh, mostly from my work on uh, a uh, divination practices and a corpus of 102 um, a, uh, manuals, uh, calendrical manuals that were uh, produced in the second half of the 17th century in uh, northern Zapata communities. For them, actually, Bezelao is a deity that they continue to worship. They continue to give offerings to uh a uh, differing um, deities that include a creator deity, Gobechi, uh, a deity of uh, fishes and rivers, a female deity, Wichana, and Bezelao, which is still the Lord of the Underworld. So you do have a problem in the sense that uh, uh, for the Zapotecs, I mean, they don't have any kind of cognitive problem in terms of doing that. There are uh, no, uh, as far as I understand, uh, the uh People who are still worshiping Bezelao uh, in the 17th century are quite happy to do so uh, using the name of this deity, uh, using rituals that go back to uh, the post-classic, the period right before the Spanish conquest, right? At the same time, when they go to church, they, you know, uh, use Bezelao for the name of the devil. When they confess to the crime of idolatry, they talk about China uh, que Bezelao, which means the the the, the labor for Uh, the lord of the underworld, right? Because they know that this is uh, precisely kind of uh, um, a uh, discourse that the Dominicans have taught them and that um, is expected of them, right? And this doesn't really get them into trouble uh, until there is, uh, you know, first uh, uh, a rebellion in 1660 that has to do more with um, uh, economic uh, concerns uh, with uh, uh, repartimentos, uh, which are this uh, really unequal uh purchasing contracts that are laid on on indigenous communities with taxation uh and then there's another rebellion in 1700 in northern uh, oaxaca right uh, against Dominicans who catch a number of indigenous people uh a uh, performing a, a ceremony uh, uh, that actually you know I, I just found out uh, just recently in my work consists of turning uh, the the uh, actual uh uh you know images of Christians against the wall, and renouncing them as you actually uh, a uh, um, uh, ritually slaughter a deer whose blood is going to be used to feed uh, some uh, deities, uh, right? So we That's
0: have amazing. Is that it, is it so that the images are not watching them do this, or is it so that they do not dishonor the the sacrifice of the blood by <laughs> having foreign gods present? What do you think that means? Turning the pictures away. I'm thinking uh, what year uh, this was. That's a,
1: I'm, 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 I'm focusing on this particular detail because people have talked a, a lot about what happened on September 14, 1700, when uh, a, uh, uh, two people who are uh, you know, friends with the Franciscans in this community of San Francisco Cajonos, bring uh, a, uh, two Dominicans who are resident in the community to the house of somebody called Jose Flores, who is the uh, head of the uh, uh, confraternity of the Rosary. Uh, so he has a christian um a uh, persona in public, but he's also leading a particular ritual and this is something that you know has puzzled me for a while because the the Spanish of course one of the first things that they report is like well they're uh, basically uh, a uh, half cut up in the deer the deer is inside uh it's basically being uh Uh, cut open and and people are taking away the the, the meat and blood. And they clearly see that uh, there's this um, (laughs) uh, 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 um, uh, representations of saints facing away, facing the wall. And I just found a reference to something called the renunciation of loa, of images, in a particular calendar that comes from that region, which means that perhaps on certain days, uh, They renounce the images by turning them against the wall, just exactly as is um, a uh, captured by uh, different descriptions of that scene um, that took place on uh, September 14, 1700. So uh, just to go back again, uh, I, I kind of introduced a lot of different details in terms of how difficult the process actually was on the ground, Right. Uh, so we have all this, uh, uh, we have a discourse of, uh, you know, becoming Christian, but also continuing your practices and talking back uh, to Christianity, right? And just to, to go back and, and finish kind of, this app of the Zapotec case and then offer something that is kind of the polar opposite of that in the Nahua, uh, uh world. Um, we have, uh, a uh, of course, this um, idea, which I think is a Ricardian idea that the Dominicans come in and they're great at rhetoric. They're great at uh, a um, taking different concepts from Zapotecs. And uh, for instance, I, I mentioned the Confraternity of the Rosary. Uh, there is a monumental work called Spiritual uh, Miscellany, Miscellany Espiritual, that is printed uh, by Cristóbal de Agüero in 1666. Uh, and this is... Uh, uh, a massive work that has all these different works uh, in Zapotec, in Valley Zapotec, that are meant to be used by, you know, people who are devotees of the Rosary of uh, Marian devotions to tell them how to pray, right? In in this um, uh, really, what is the right word? Literary uh, Zapotec, this uh, beautiful Zapotec. and what he does is he tries to convince them that this act, actually the war from Zachila, which is actually you know the, the 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 theme that gives a name to the chapter in my work uh, this idea that uh, you know uh they're going to embrace something called the Zachila war Tisha Zachila, uh, which is basically uh ties the notion of a war that comes from Zachila, and Zachila is, of course, uh, a very important polity uh, before the conquest. Uh, uh, basically, uh, in the 15th and 16th century, is one of the most important valley Zapotec uh, states. This is where a lot of rulers are uh, breathe, uh, a, uh So there is this notion of Zachila and the Zapotec uh, thought as uh, this important political capital. So what, what are you trying to do?
0: I have a, May it, I ask it, about the Zachila mm-hmm. um, so it, it, this is the 17th, second half of the 17th century, and they're remembering the name of the, the polity that mm-hmm. preceded the arrival of the Spaniards. So they're going back 200 years in memory, or almost. Mm-hmm. For them, is that like, this is the name of our people? So this is, you know, this gospel is the word of our people? Or is it expressly, um, this is the precursor state before the foreigners came? Don't don't forget who you are.
1: Um. I think uh, it's a bit more towards uh, what uh, the, the second possibility that you mentioned. Um, so uh, let, let's also be clear about something else. Um, Aguero a uh, is a vicar of Zachila, so he has kind of a personal interest in uh, uh, making Zacchila shine. But I, I found references to uh, Zachila. What
0: is that? What is a vicar? What is a vicar of Zacchila? Uh, what is his role there? Because uh, he's also a Dominican friar at the same time, isn't he?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, um we were talking earlier about how the Franciscans basically took over central Mexico, right? Uh, so the Dominicans see what happened and in the 1530s they start looking for other uh communities to uh a uh um evangelize and also to set up shop with uh, no other, um let's say competition, right? So they go to Oaxaca, they go to Chiapas. Uh they uh by, you know, the mid-17th century, they have basically been in charge of evangelization uh, in uh, 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 in Oaxaca since uh, the late 1530s, early 1540s. Uh, uh, they have a lot of wealth; they're very dominant. So, uh, Burgua, of course, uh, it talks about this. Francisco Burgua uh, uh, chronicles all the different a uh, uh, things that the Dominican Order did, uh, and talks, you know, about Agüero's work, for instance. But to go back to Agüero, Agüero is um, a somebody who. Uh, Has deep knowledge of the Zapotec language, uh, spent decades uh, working, uh, you know, uh, talking to Zapotecs, teaching them, you know, the the prayers in Zapotec, uh, is a prominent member of the Dominican order. Uh, The vicar, that means that he is the person in charge uh, of... uh, administering the sacraments to to people in Zachila. Uh, There's other people who are working under his command, of course, but he's one of the main Dominicans in in Zachila. Uh, And uh, so, so just to go back to the question of Zachila and why this is so important for Zapotex, um, uh, uh, I've seen that name come up in other songs uh, from Northern Oaxaca. So because that comes up in other texts. I know that it's not just Agüero saying Zachila is the best because this is where I live, right? It's more about <laughs> going back to uh, that earlier uh, uh, notion of Zachila as the most important uh, state uh, in the 15th century, right? Uh, uh, because, I mean, to cut a very long story short, there's um, a, uh, a somebody called Don Juan Cortes Cosillopi, who is uh, a ruler of Tehuantepec, uh, who is actually caught worshipping in Mitla. And he, uh, uh, by the 15th century, Zapotec polities uh, exist in the Valley of Oaxaca, but there's a very strong connection between rulers in Zajila, rulers in Tehuantepec, and then the other node, of course, is Mitla, which is uh, a Spanish version of Mictlan, uh, the town of the dead. Uh, that's Nahuatl, the the actual name of that uh, a uh, uh, uh century in in zapotex lioba um so people continue to go to lioba because uh, a uh, important lords are buried there as they are buried in zachila and as they were buried in monte alban uh, in the classic period but that would take us back to 200 uh, to 500 uh, of the common era right so you have these sanctuaries and you have this uh, uh, ruling groups and elites attached to particular states. So to go back to, you know, what it means to to uh, talk about zachila in 1666, uh, for Agüero, is, this is like uh, talking about the uh, uh, one of the most um, revered uh, uh, mm, ideas of a political authority for the Zapotecs uh, and tying it to the memory of Zaychila. And of course, uh, uh, as I said, uh, Quite a while ago, unfortunately, the word of Sachila is actually uh, a term that he uses to talk about Christianity. So he's trying. I mean, if you see it from uh, not just a perspective that I would have wanted to impose, but uh, trying to step outside and think about um, what a uh, literate zapotec might think about this, uh, he's trying to appeal. Uh, to Zapotec pride in their own history. He's trying to say, well, the war that you asked before is a war that is, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm not going to try to quote it directly, but it's uh, a war that is basically covered in uh, in dirt. It's a war that is uh, r- uh, robed, that is uh, hidden. Uh, this is a direct reference to precisely the kind of rituals that I was talking about uh, back on uh, re- remembering the slaughtered deer on uh, 1700. All these rituals that specialists conduct are couched in a language that is not very transparent uh, to people. Uh, this actually exists, of course, in Troad uh, and Mesoamerica. What, and uh, what it's trying to do is indict that language for being so op- opaque. In contrasting it with the word of Zachila, which is actually the word Christianity, which is a pure word, a new word, a word that is easily understood. Uh, and that's uh, you, the basis of his argument. You have to accept this new Christian word because it's tied somehow to the word of Zapotec State. is better than the word of or, or your ritual specialist, right? And of course, what is going to happen is that some people are going to take, take that path and decide, well, you know, I'm convinced uh, by the argument of Agüero. I'm convinced by the argument of Franciscans about rejecting my uh, previous beliefs. Other people, like Northern Zapotecs, are going to say, well, you know, we're going to uh, exist uh, in these worlds with one foot uh, firmly planted in the Christian world, the other on the world of the ancestors. And they managed to do that uh, in public, at least until the uh, early 18th century. And after that, that seems to go down a kind of an underground, right? Because these practices don't come up and are not as punished, as often as as they were in the 17th century in Oaxaca. So do we have time now to turn to the polar opposite of that, which
0: is- Yes, I would love to hear this.
1: Okay. So- uh, uh, to, to to think about, and this, you know, I'm kind of now jumping centuries. You know, we've gone and kind of uh, seen some elements of the Dominican trajectory. Uh, the last thing that I said about the Franciscans uh, was that they had established this uh, school in Tlatelolco in 1536. I haven't really told you about what they do. Uh, they... Uh, uh, people attached with this school uh, work with Bernardino de Sagún to produce uh, one of the most monumental works about Nahua culture and society, uh, the Historia General or Florentine Codex. Uh, a, uh, they work with uh, Alonso de Molina, uh, who a, uh, uh, composes the um, first uh, dictionary, uh, Nahuatl Spanish in 1555, expands it in 1571. And, uh, and uh, they work with lots of other people, among them uh, Juan, uh, Juan Bautista Viseo, who in the uh, late 16th, early 17th century produces more of a dozen works in Nahuatl. They work with uh, lots of other authors. Uh, that uh, Another important author that I should mention is Juan de Gaona, who produces the, the so-called conversations about Christian doctrine uh, in the 1540s, which is a work that, uh, because of... Uh, concerns with the, what the Franciscans are doing because uh, you have to also think that um, uh, what's happening what is happening in uh, uh, in the school of Santa Cruz doesn't uh, go without a response on the part of uh, a other uh, a um, ecclesiastic observers or colonial authorities uh, who feel that uh, indigenous people should not have access to a liberal education, to Latin, to uh, the printing press, because there's actually printing press uh, in Santa Cruz uh, to knowing how to uh, translate from Latin into Nahuatl or into Spanish. Uh, so you have this uh, generation of people uh, who are perhaps uh uh, if you were to choose somebody <clears throat> who represents all of them most people think about Antonio Valeriano who was a governor of mexico Tenochtitlan uh and who <clears throat> was very prominent as one of the uh uh first uh, um a uh, uh pupils of Santa uh, of Santa Cruz tlatelolco and who was on to have a great political career. Um a, you can think about uh, Hernando Rivas who comes from Texcoco who works very closely with uh, Molina. The work that I've done in terms of this partnership between Hernando Rivas uh and Alonso Molina uh suggests that they're the authors of this translation of the imitation of Christ uh into Nahuatl, which if you you know take a second to to think about this um is quite spectacular. Um from you know the f- 1520s to the early 1530s, uh, between Gante and Valencia and others, they've gone from basic indoctrination to uh, probably by the 1550s, you know, because some of the terms that are used in uh, this first translation of the imitation of Christ, which survives as a manuscript that is presented uh, by uh a a leading Franciscan uh, to Juan de Ovando, the president of the Council of the Indies in 1570. So we know that it was produced before 1570, most likely between the 1550s and the 1560s. So by the 1550s, 1560s, um, the kind of... Conversations at uh, Rivas and Valeriano, and there's also Pedro Egante, the teacher at Santa Cruz, not not Pedro Egante, the Flemish Franciscan, who's uh, actually uh, uh, a now intellectual. All these people uh, a, uh, are actually uh, committed to this project, and they've gone so far that they're beginning to take, uh, you know. It works like The Imitation of Christ uh, uh, for people who I think I think you should explain the,
0: what is no. the, the Imitation what, what is, of Christ. What is yeah, I, I'm explain about what, why that is so, so different from the basic catechism.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, uh, this is the um, first bestseller after the Bible, in the sense that, of course, the Bible uh, being printed by Gutenberg, is the first <laughs> bestseller and continues to be a first bestseller because, of course, it's very popular. Uh, the uh, uh, his um, uh, you know uh, imprints of the Bible, but uh, then um, you know uh, the imitation of Christ, which was produced by uh, somebody associated with the brother the Brothers of the Common Life, in what is now the Netherlands, uh, uh, Thomas Akempis, uh Probably you know in the first quarter of the 14th century, around uh, 1325 uh, or so, he produces this work that uh, uh, tries to present. Uh, Examples drawn from the life of Christ in very plain language, but written, of course, in Latin, because this is the language of uh, later expression in uh, in the 14th century, right? Um, so uh, he tries to write this work uh, for people who have no background in theology. So this is a work that very consciously avoids Mm, citing a lot of uh, uh, theological authorities or passages from the Bible, uh, it focuses on uh, uh, different, again, uh, examples uh, that are drawn directly from thinking about uh, Christ and his lives and sacrifices. So this is the work that is chosen by the Franciscans uh, because by the 16th century, this is known as the Contempo Mundi. Uh, Contempt for the World. Uh, this is a word that uh, um, there's a lot of different treatises that are published or known uh, under that name. And by the 16th century, like thinking about uh, uh, rejecting uh, the world is something that is associated to Kempis and the people uh, who are part of his sphere in the 14th century, uh, which uh, uh, is usually called in Latin the modern devotion, the moderna. So this comes to 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 have kind of a a new tint in the sense that uh, uh it is about embracing Christ and it is about uh, a following it in your daily life but it doesn't have to go through a theologian or a deep study of the bible for you to understand it so it's a book for shopkeepers for merchants for uh you know people who have very limited knowledge so this is translated into um basically every major European language by the second uh, la- by, by the end of the um, 16th century. Uh, a, uh, in mm, very self-conscious, I think, Molina and whoever helped him uh, choose that work, decide, well, this is a work we're going to use to translate into Nahuatl so that indigenous people will have uh, access, not just to the Bible, but to work that will really, going back to what I was trying to do, I uh, was trying to sell uh, a version of Zapotec history to the Zapotecs. Uh, and have kind of uh, a mixed response, so to speak. Uh, Molina is trying to bring in uh, a work which is very successful, has been tested on the ground for generations in uh, Spain as a reason for embracing Christianity. And this obviously is uh, pitched towards um, now speakers who are, a, uh, wealthy enough to perhaps buy a print of the book or know somebody who knows it, has a print of the book, to read it. Uh, but the problem, of course, is that this work never gets printed. There is uh, a first attempt. As I mentioned before, this is uh, given to uh, the president of the Council of the Indies. Uh, it goes straight into Philip II's library in El Escorial. People forget about this manuscript and its mm. existence. Um in the uh by the end of the 16th century another franciscan that i mentioned before uh, quickly Bautista viseo tries to revive this um translation project uh and actually announces in his 1606 ceremony, uh, this work is actually coming the problem is that it never actually came off the presses either because of concerns about having this work available in Nahuatl or because of the death of Viseo. We, we don't really know what stopped that. But just one last thing, because I, I know you probably have lots of questions. While we're on Bautista Viseo, I want to mention, you know, uh, likewise in this mold of taking, uh, let's say, devotional bestsellers from uh, a uh, Europe and trying to adapt them to an Nahuatl contest, uh, Viseo pulls kind of a fast one on uh, uh, the authorities in New Spain by taking uh, what is essentially another bestseller, uh, the Book of Prayer and Meditation, Libro de la Oración y Meditación, by uh, the Dominican uh, uh, Fray Luis de Granada. Uh, he takes it and takes uh, some of, uh, this work is divided into meditations, daily meditations, nocturnal meditations. He takes a medita- for every day of the week. He takes a set of meditations, I think it's Tuesday through Saturday or so, uh, and um, translates translates them into Nahuatl and prints it as if it were his own work, uh, which he calls the Book of Misery, Libro de la Miseria. So again, he's inscribing his work in this kind of uh, 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 devotional literature that is based on rejecting the world, rejecting um, a, the pleasures of uh, a uh, you know food of riches, and trying to. Um, uh, claim access to this kind of interior life uh, that is devoted to uh, uh, a uh, you know a closer observation of, of Christian principles and he uses granada 's work and again you know without attribution they would never have let him publish an version of Granada had he said well, this is what we 're doing and uh it's Molina and Ribas they were not hiding what they were doing everyone knew. Uh, that this was coming directly from from uh, from Kempis, uh, so actually, as I said, uh, Bautista was so successful because this work actually is printed with uh, every permission that he needs. Uh, he calls it my firstborn, but again, he does that by hiding uh, artfully what he's about to do, which is to take one of the um, classics uh, in sixteenth-century uh, devotion literature, a bestseller in Spain, and translate it in part into Nahuatl.
0: That, that's amazing. So also in this book are, are not only many examples of uh, textual analysis and taking uh, te- text in two different forms side by side, very much the way famously the Rosetta Stone can be used to discover the meanings of languages. Uh, but also you have uh, other kinds of uh, performances and ritual practices, something you call uh, self-catechesis, a performance of, of rosary plays, um, songs. Maybe you'd like to uh, briefly, uh, Dr. Tavares, tell us tell us about the, the other contents of, of this wonderful volume.
1: Yeah, no, I'll try to go briefly because uh, this is something that I haven't done uh, and tell you about how the chapters contribute to our conversation about self-catechesis, indigenous reception, and what we call in this book, uh, indigenous Christianities. Uh, so I mentioned earlier uh, the work uh, uh, on chapters two and three about uh, uh, Nawa and Quechua so called confessions, which of course turn out to be indigenous rituals that are not uh, like confessions uh, in the Christian sense, but are recruited by uh, Christian uh, missionaries to, to convey the notion of confession uh, into Nahuatl and Quechua. Then uh, we have a, a very interesting book that has been worked on by uh, Gary Sparks and Frauke Sachse, uh, which is. Uh, Basically, a notebook um, of observations by uh, a, this uh, Dominican, uh, a, uh, a Vico, who uh, Domingo Vico, who uh, tries to take a lot of um, uh, teachings from Aquinas' uh, uh, Summa Theologica, which is his greatest work, and uh, he, they look kind of over his shoulder. He's beginning to adapt that work for Giche, uh, and K'ichi Maya speakers. And this is also important because Sparks and his uh, other work has shown uh, very interesting similarities in the language using K'ichi Maya to describe uh, a uh, creator deities in the Popol Buch, which is usually thought about as the most important Maya sacred book, and the very uh, words that Biko uses to describe uh, the Christian deity uh, in the, uh, late 1540s, early 1550s for Kichay speakers. So it's an important parallel, right? And then we kind of jump into, uh, reception, uh, an indigenous agency, uh, and, uh, uh, just, you know, thinking about how difficult it is for, uh, missionaries to impart, uh, teachings to indigenous people, uh, a, uh, even, even very compliant ones. Justina Olko has a wonderful chapter where she shows how the story of Judas, uh, Judas, of course, uh, a, uh, the, uh, the person who um, uh, a betrayed Christ, uh, uh, a, uh, actually uh, explodes because of the accumulation of sin in his uh, body in this Nawa version. And she shows how this is actually linked to uh, both uh, early modern uh, versions of the story of Judas, but also this uh, notion of imbalance and transgression that goes back to uh, the notion of uh, Nawa transgression as sin that we were talking about earlier. Then Ben Leeming takes us into the world of Fabian de Aquino, who is uh, a catechist who embraces very, very, very uh, uh, fervently Um, The uh, Wars of the Franciscans, so much that uh, he actually produces uh, a play about the Antichrist where uh, the former indigenous uh, ritual specialists are presented in a very negative light. So this is kind of uh, if you think about uh, you know Christian works as uh, ideological propaganda. it's kind of a, a salvo that is written entirely by a very fervent now a Christian. And then of course Yali uh, takes us into the world of to, uh, the, 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 the world of be Christianity, something that is uh, not very often taught about, and ta- tries to talk precisely about the breakdowns in in translation and uh, meaning and intention that happen when uh, a uh, uh the first missionaries tried to talk to the tupis about uh uh, uh christian deities uh in the uh, beginning of the 16th century in brazil then we have another section that is about uh, how um you know the, the the meanings are transformed which begins of course with a very important uh, chapter by john chuchek where he's actually Taking the whole Franciscan project we talked about, uh, about conversion, and kind of turns it on its head by suggesting that uh, as the Franciscans in Yucatan were trying to collect uh, different wards, uh the Yucatan Maya were having a bit of a laugh at their expense because they actually uh, uh, successfully insert sexual innuendo in some of the references that they give to the Franciscans. Uh, So when they talk about sodomy, when they talk about uh, certain sexual practices, which apparently the Franciscans uh, have an unquenchable appetite in terms of uh, getting to know the specifics of it. And of course, it's supposed to be for the confessional, right? Um, So uh, uh, from Trichek's perspective, the Yucatec Maya seem to have the upper hand because they uh, uh, are able to... Uh, guide them in slightly different directions in terms of um, that point more at sexual innuendo than to what the Franciscans seem to be interested in. Uh, This is something, uh, you know, this notion of um, transformation is uh, also explored by Claudia Brasida in To Make Christianity Fit, and uh, she takes a very interesting passage uh, that concerns a, the uh, apparent uh, sacrilegious use of uh, a Christian insignia uh, by a, a, a Quechua specialist. And uh, she tries to um, understand how the scene might ha- actually have been understood from the perspective of uh, Quechua speakers who are familiar not only with Christianity, uh, but with um, a uh, pre-contact uh, Andean uh, uh, uh Religions, and then this uh, comes to an end in that particular section uh, with uh, a chapter by Mark Christensen, who talks about uh, uh, this discourse of the signs that are going to be given uh, for Doomsday. Uh, from again going back to the work of Juan Bautista Viseo, which I mentioned earlier, who uh, you know focuses on them in his uh, sermonary in, of 1606 in Nahuatl, and from other texts that he has found. Uh, um, primarily in Yucatec Maya, about these signs that are going to be given, you know, in terms of uh, you know weather signs, portents, all these horrible things that are going to happen that are going to close in to the fact that the world is ending from a Christian perspective, and he shows how this was assimilated uh, by Biseo. Uh, on the one hand in Nahuatl and by Yucatec Maya writers on the other. And then finally we have, and um, uh, I, I should also mention this, uh, the work of Abelardo de la Cruz, who is a now anthropologist, who is uh, currently uh, about finished with his uh, PhD at uh, SUNY Albany. I've been, you know, of course, I've been uh, happy to uh, assist him in some ways with his work. Uh, and uh, he uh, actually tells us, uh, uh, you know, what is going on um today in uh Nahua communities in the Huasteca region uh, that is close to the gulf coast in in Mexico and talks about the recent history of catechism you know this kind of early push by catechists that were coming just like uh like the people that uh, I mentioned before that Ben leming and uh, Justina Alco talk about the sixteenth century were coming. Uh, you know, in some ways very convinced about Christianity in the late 1970s. uh, And they come and try to preach that to their communities and they realize that people are not going to listen to them. So they have to very self-consciously figure out a way of within their own interpretation of Christianity, which they very much believe in, with uh, what is called el costumbre, which is, of course, um, a Nahua local religion, which comes, uh, you know, of course, primarily from... uh, Pre-Columbian ways of thinking about the world, but it also has incorporated uh, Christian thinking and a thinking about, uh, you know, 20, 21st century world uh, within it. And uh, uh, Abelardo de la Cruz gives us uh, kind of a first row seat because, of course, he's uh, a uh, uh, from one of these communities, from Chicontepec. He tells us what people actually on the ground think about this conversation uh, that t- has taken place from the late 70s until about the... Uh, early outs in uh, in those communities. And he gives a kind of a more harmonious uh, perspective on this and, you know, talks about how differences are resolved in, in harmonious ways and uh, emphasizes in some ways, um, you know, this kind of coming together of Nawa Christians and uh, more traditional Nawa's, and how they're able to uh, come to uh, an agreement as to the very different meanings that uh, indigenous Christians will have in only two communities in in mexico so it's going kind of uh, to the microcosm again and then going back uh to understanding how uh, all this range of uh, examples uh and this is the work that i tried to in the conclusions uh gives us a sense of uh what is important to think in terms of that first spread of global christianity during the renaissance and again Uh, The book, uh, you know, for historians, this is something that uh, is important to say uh, because of um, the examples that we have and the case studies that we uh, uh, ended up focusing on. We focus primarily on the 16th and 17th centuries. So this is a kind of uh, Renaissance to post-Renaissance period uh, uh, going on into perhaps uh, Baroque literature, Baroque Christianity towards the end. uh, But it's a particular uh, part of the process and in the um, uh, conclusions, I try to whip together all these examples and show how uh, global indigenous Christianities emerged uh, uh, in this period and how they're differently practiced uh, by uh, different missionaries who are, of course, in some ways, hemmed in by the reception that indigenous um Actors, indigenous intellectuals and indigenous believers have given to the kind of arguments they try to present uh, about Christianity in different terrains uh, throughout uh, colonial Latin America.
0: Well, and maybe I can add two things. One, I'd just like to underscore what you said, uh, Christianities, Mm -hmm. you have that in your conclusion, which I think is an important contribution that... um, you write vibrant and definitely local Christianities engage in a never ending dialogue with institutional expressions of Catholicism for half a millennium. And we see in in each of these chapters an an interpretation uh, based on whatever evidence we can find um, often very um, cleverly looking at it from different angles to, to, to make arguments about what was really going on in the hearts and minds of the people on the ground. And, And the second point I'd like to, um, uh, respond to that you just made was your inclusion of, of, of your colleague um, Abelardo de la Cruz, who is not just looking at evidence that we find in an archive, but his own lived experience talking about um, el costumbre uh, in the Huasteca region of Veracruz mm-hmm. in, in the last 50 years. And here I was um, impressed that um not only did they believe in their you know, pre-pre-Christian uh, gods, um, but they incorporated the Christian God as a praiseworthy um, member of the of the pantheon. But he chose the word that the Christian religion encircles the Nahua religion, which I I found striking because it really puts the, the Nahua religion in the center, and then puts the new religion as sort of a veneer or a coat or a way to interpret the old through the new um and you have a bit of this in in your own chapter when you're talking about the zapotecs who resorted to ancestor worship and child sacrifice who continue to count themselves as christian uh through a public performance of faith at least until the n- next transgression you write so do you th- so um i guess my point is we know that anytime a a universal religion goes from one culture to another it it has to change for for to be uh comprehensible. And I think the most obvious example for us all is to this very day, Christians bring evergreen trees into their living rooms and decorate them at the winter solstice, like the German pagans Mm -hmm. did a thousand years ago, because that was the way that the German pagans were willing to accept the new faith. The new dispensation is like, yeah, but can we still decorate these Christmas trees? And that was the deal. Do you think this is more of, of that kind of syncretic give and take? Or is it as Abelardo Cruz says, like no, the center is the center, and the new is the new. Do you can you make an evaluation like that, or is it different everywhere and for every single practitioner? Um, how do, how do how should we understand Mexico in the year 2020?
1: Well, no, I mean uh, this is the hardest question, right? What is the nature of conversion? Uh, and uh, uh, Ricardo actually, you know, had a good answer to that. He's like, I'm not going to even. Guess what, uh, Bertrand in the indigenous is, uh, people's dark minds that's what he called them, uh, and which you know kind of relates to early notions about conversion. I mean, William James, uh, you know, thinking about uh, his work on conversions in the late 19th century, thought it was kind of a, a, an enigma, a mystery, right? Because at some point, and this is, of course, what the Franciscans were trying to do with far less tools, perhaps, that uh, the latter uh, missionaries. Uh, uh, have uh, later on to get into their subjects' minds, not only to tell them what they had to do, but also to a, uh, uh, confirm that they were believing things exactly in the ways that uh, they wanted them to believe in. So that's quite a mandate. Um, so I guess to, to answer that question, uh, again, you know, I'm bouncing this off Ricard because uh, I think it's important uh, for uh, your listeners to to have a sense of how we're Going in a different direction, um, Ricard also said, well, the one good thing about, um, you know, Franciscans uh, in uh, New Spain was that, uh, yes, on the one hand, they didn't let indigenous people uh, uh, carry on their work as priests. So that part was incomplete. You, you needed, from his perspective, indigenous priests to have this uh More organic acceptance of Christianity. On the other hand, he does say that uh, unlike Protestants, uh, Catholics leave kind of all the implements for conversion in front of people's uh, uh, reach and then uh, invite them to use them in whichever ways. They want. And of course, the the result is going to be inspected and there's going to be punishment. If you think about, of course, uh, the campaigns against idolatry uh, in terms of the choices that are made uh, by indigenous people. So I think um, uh, in the end, uh, what we have, and it's important to kind of uh, to understand what indigenous Christianity means, is to get uh, in some ways beyond this notion that uh, Christianity, I mean, it is true. It seems to be ever an ever so pliable uh, religion in terms of admitting the Natalis Solis Invictus, which is, of course, the uh, 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 Roman celebration for the sun uh, in the winter solstice that somehow, of course, becomes attached to when, you know, actually we celebrate uh, Christ's birth, you know. Um, uh, and we can think, of course, about Christianity as, again, having all these encounters with uh, European paganism, with uh, uh Anything between that and, uh, you know, uh, uh, 19th and 20th century uh, Protestant and evangelical um, uh, uh, devotions, which are, of course, much more um, uh, important in in Mexico and Latin America than uh, they were, uh, you know, uh, 50 or 60 years ago. So I think, uh, you know, when you think about indigenous Christianities, you're going to talk about a word, and we'd like to use the word hybrid rather than syncretic, because syncretic somehow implies that there's some sort of uh, uh, process at which uh, the, what has begun to happen has ended and has produced something. Uh, whereas if you think about constant cycles of hybridity, uh, like what Abelardo highlights, right? It is not that Christianity arrived to Chicontepec in the 1970s, right? Christianity has been arriving to Chicontepec uh, since at least the 1540s, right? And different generations get different results, right? Uh, and um, I mean, this is more of an anthropological argument, I guess. Uh, a uh, you know, uh, if you, you think you can think about Renato Rosaldo's thinking about uh, how different, um, you know. Uh, uh, generations reconstruct their version of uh, uh, a uh, their own culture and society in ways that they see fit. And this is something that, of course, has kind of a cyclical and periodic nature. So you can think about indigenous Christianity as, on the one hand, being a constant uh, reshuffling through different modes of hybridity, right? And the most important thing here is, I think, not to note uh, the syncretic or hybrid notion of what happens, but to really Uh, try to understand uh, in terms of agency, in terms of um, uh, reception, what seems to matter to indigenous Christians on the ground and why at different times, right? So to go beyond, uh, again, uh, thinking about uh, uh, that uh, um, uh, idea of getting into people's minds, but rather trying to look at uh, how it matters for them to be a particular kind of Christian does, one first, I think, uh, lesson that could be drawn out of this book and its case studies. The other one is this notion of the uh, archipelago of faith. This is something that I've used in my own work in Invisible Wars, for instance, to think about how uh, religion and ritual practices in Mesoamerica are always uh, local. You know, we have this notion of uh, uh, different Mesoamerican principles, but we have even you know before Christianity came around, uh, this um, very much. Uh, uh Yeché, uh, Ka, and I'm using the kind of Nahuatl Zapotec and Yucatec Maya words for a polity or community base levels of religious uh, uh, order, which is of course tied to the political order and tied to the territorial order, and this is gonna form uh, this kind of, um, uh, like I said, an archipelago, uh, a quilt. Uh, you can, you know, uh, put a, another metaphor that you like there. Uh, in the sense that uh, you know what happens locally uh, uh, a, uh, interacts in some ways with what's happening at the level of the, uh, the the entire colony or transatlantic exchanges, but it's really important to go back and forth between this kind of local focus and the kind of more uh, regional and even transatlantic uh, foci of um, a religious practices, because, you know, otherwise we risk kind of uh, writing kind of very generic, very large, very broad uh, 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 histories of of Christianity that will not uh, give enough weight, uh, I fear, uh, to all the work that indigenous Christians put into understanding their world from uh, different perspectives, which, of course, as Abelardo La Cruz reminds us, uh, include, but are not centrally um, a... uh, Uh, regulated by the Christian one.
0: I think that's a wonderful place to leave it and an excellent uh, point. And I think we all owe a debt to you and to the other scholars who uh, continue to study these, these languages. Uh, and, And am I correct that they are vibrant living languages that are spoken in pockets of Mexico that if you, there are some places where you can go and to a village where Zapotec is spoken or,
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. In ter- well, in terms of uh, basically, I mean, all the languages that we work with are, you know, uh, a living languages. I mean, definitely what was happening in Amazonia today, Tupi languages are not looking as as, as well as, uh, you know, Quiche or Nahuatl, right? Uh, Nahuatl has maybe 1. 1.2, 1. 1.3 million speakers in Mexico, but also in different parts of the United States. Uh, Zapotec has about half a million speakers. Uh, again, uh, you know, sometimes uh, in Mexico, but also in the United States. Uh, the same thing is uh, true of Quichemaya in terms of having speakers throughout Guatemala, Mexico, uh, and uh, the U.S. just because of migration patterns. And a lot of these languages are becoming more kind of uh, trans, translocal and transnational languages. So they're very much with us and... Uh, uh, you know we're happy to do something that in some ways contributes to uh, the conversation about uh, you know what should be done to continue to support speakers of these languages and to preserve these languages in the 21st century in our global society
0: It really is a, a, a big contribution and um, a laudable undertaking so thank you again for this excellent book and also for your time this morning and uh, c- congratulations on this achievement.
1: Thank you Christopher.